Have you ever named something or, or someone? You know, uh, an, obvious, uh, an obvious one is, is a child, but, that, but that's certainly far from the only thing that, that we give names to. Um, perhaps you've named a, a pet before or, or some inanimate object. I have friends who have a tradition of, of naming their vehicles. When I was in seminary at University of Dubuque, it was a distant education program, and we would go up there. I would spend about a month out of every year there on campus, and as, as students, we had access to the athletic facilities of the University of Dubuque, which were, which were beautiful. And, and over the course of my time there, a, a few of my classmates who enjoyed playing basketball, we decided to, to purchase a basketball that, that we actually would leave with one of the faculty members up there. And, for some reason or another, we named the basketball Travis. I have no idea the significance of, of that particular name. Um, in our scripture for this week, we find Jesus and the disciples talking about names. Jesus asks the disciples, what, what do people call me? And then... Jesus gives a new name to one of the disciples. Names are important. And there is significance, particularly in our names for one another. They have power. According to a 2006 study done by the Institute of the Study of Child Development, researchers have found that, that there is a unique brain activation that occurs when a subject hears their own name. Other studies indicate that the brain releases dopamine and serotonin when you hear your own name. In fact, our, our brains are able to recognize our own names over the din of a large crowd. Have you ever had that experience when you've been in a crowd of a, of a lot of people and it's a noisy room, but you swear you just heard your name somewhere? There's power in a name. As I mentioned, in today's story from the Gospel of Matthew, the writer describes this encounter between Jesus and one of the disciples. It's between Jesus and Simon. And Simon confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, this significant name or title, and then then Jesus confers upon Simon a new name, Peter. Listen to this story from Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, 
and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then Jesus sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What are some things that you noticed in this interaction? For the sake of time today, I'd like us to zero in on this exchange between Simon or Peter and Jesus. And even more specifically, how it is that Jesus responds to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. In Matthew's gospel, this moment serves to to some degree as a a hinge point in the narrative. We have been sort of building up to this moment. And and as the reader, perhaps familiar with the gospel story, we, we have maybe known all along where this was going, but the disciples don't. And so from, from this moment on, Jesus begins to sort of explicitly explain to the disciples what it means that he is the Messiah. And so at this pivotal moment, Simon says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And this confession elicits an immediate and powerful response from Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So this morning, I I want us to ask, what does this declaration mean for Peter, and and what doesn't it mean? And likewise, what does it mean for us as believers to confess Jesus as the Son of God, and what doesn't it mean? For those who perhaps grew up in the church, this is a familiar story. And, and I think we tend to think of this, this moment as the moment that Peter gets it. And, and I don't know if we, if we just miss it in reading it, if we forget it, or if it just gets lost in the excitement, but Jesus has something to say immediately after he says, blessed are you. Jesus says, blessed are you, but this isn't your doing. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You you didn't figure this out. You didn't arrive at this conclusion, Simon Peter, because you were holy enough or or good enough or smart enough or, or anything enough. This knowledge that you have, this statement of faith, this conviction. It's a gift 
from God. And so friends, in the same way, your faith, my faith, our confession that Jesus is Lord is, is not because we are holy enough or, or smart enough or good enough or anything enough. Our faith is a gift from God. And so we have nothing to boast about. Now, a second, there's something else that, that transpires just outside of the passage from today. I, I want to read you the, the very next verses that happen here, that occur. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Did, did you hear the last verse for today? Verse 20. The, the writer quotes Jesus as saying something fairly curious, right? Then Jesus sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You see, Jesus understands that they don't fully comprehend what that means yet, that, that Jesus is going to be the suffering Savior. Jesus knows that their understanding of what it means to be the Messiah is not how it's going to play out. Jesus is not going to be a conquering king in the way that we understand that term. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody yet because you don't get it. In fact, as we continue to read, after Jesus tells them all that he'll be arrested and, and killed, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. The point is this, Peter's confession that he gets it, Peter's confession that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, it doesn't mean that he now gets it all right. And we know this, right? Through, throughout the rest of the gospel and into Acts, we still see Peter do some pretty head-scratching things. But doesn't that also line up with our own experience of how we have seen others who profess Jesus Christ as the Messiah behave? Doesn't that line up with the way that those of us who profess Jesus Christ to be Messiah behave sometimes too? To confess that Jesus is the Messiah, to finally get it, to now finally receive the gift of faith is not to say that we will now get it all right. And these two 
facts together, the, 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 the fact, the truth that, that our faith comes to us as a gift from God and that it does not mean that we have it all together. It should inform the posture that we take when it comes to our faith and how we interact with others in the community around us, particularly how we interact with non-believers. Last weekend, our staff and lay leadership were together for a time of reflection and learning, led by Reverend Mark Ramsey. And, and if you were here in worship or, or watched worship on the live stream last Sunday, you got a chance to hear Reverend Ramsey preach. Reverend Mark Ramsey is executive director for the Ministry Collaborative and, and works with churches all over the country. But he shared with us this recent study done by Barna, and Barna is an organization that tracks the role of faith in America. And this particular study sought to better understand how people of no faith experience their interactions about faith with Christians. And I thought they asked just a brilliant question. They asked people of no faith to imagine a Christian that they would be interested in having a conversation with, a Christian that they would be interested in learning from. And they asked them to select from a series of characteristics, and the top four characteristics that were chosen by people of no faith that they would like to see in a Christian they'd be willing to learn from was that this Christian would listen without judgment, that this Christian would be honest about their doubts. That this Christian would not force a conclusion. And that this Christian would care about them as a person. Friends, the good news is, is that to be a witness for Jesus Christ in our community, we don't have to have it figured all out. And we need to be honest about that. Effective witness calls for an open-handed faith. We are called to, to hold our faith in the public space with a certain humility. A humility that allows the space for others to ask questions and a humility that allows us to continue to grow. You see, telling others about Jesus doesn't need to be a signal that, that you have all the answers. Confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, is, it's not the end of the journey, right? It's, it's the beginning of a life change. This last Thursday during our, our session meeting, I asked our elders if, if they'd be willing to just get into small groups, and I, and I asked them a, a single question to answer in these groups of four or five of them. I was simply, why church? Why church? We live in a secularized culture now. There's, there's little to no societal pressure to be here. You're your boss, he or she, is not coming in on Monday and knocking on your office door to ask where you were on Sunday. Mona corrected me earlier to tell her that I would do that, but 
But that's not happening out in the world, right? Perhaps you have a parent that checks on you and asks if you went to church Sunday, but those days are, are long gone. So why church? Why are you here? And our session member that was sitting next to me, she shared this magnificent story of her own coming to faith, of, of, of why church, why it is that she makes that a priority on a, on a weekly basis. And it was a story that'll preach. It's her story. What's your story? That's what God calls you to share in open-handed ways. Understanding that we are all still growing and although I think intuitively that makes a lot of sense to us that, that we are still growing, studies seem to indicate that we actually fail to see that. There's this really fascinating observed psychological phenomenon called the end of history illusion. Maybe you are familiar with this concept. Uh, Dr. Jordi Koidbach is a psychologist and, and doing his uh, postdoc work at Harvard with some other uh, colleagues they did this uh, study, and they measured the, the personalities, values, and preferences of more than 19,000 people, uh, all of different ages, from age 18 all the way to age 68. And, and they asked them to report how much they had changed in the past decade. I'd like for you to consider that right now. How much have you changed? In the past decade, your personality, your values, your preferences. And then they asked the participants to, to predict how much they thought they would change in the next 10 years. How much do you think you'll change? Your values, your, your personality your preferences. They did this with, with young people, middle-aged people, and older people, and all of them, all of them reported that they had changed a lot in the past 10 years, but would change relatively little in the future. Do you see the incongruity there. When someone who was 35, say, was asked about the last 10 years, they would describe significant change in personality, values, and preferences. However, when asked about how they thought they would change over the next 10 years, they predicted little to no change in those same three areas. However, when someone who was 45 was asked the very same questions, they would remark that they had changed significantly in the previous 10 years. Perhaps you experienced that as I asked you those questions just now. Consistently in the study, people described significant change in the last 10 years and predicted little change over the next 10. In other words, people, it seems, we, we regard the present as this watershed moment at which we have finally become the person that we will be for the rest of our lives. 
And it's just not true. And thank goodness, right? Thank goodness God is drawing us forward and growing our faith. And this is true with how we understand who God is and who God has created us to be and what God is doing in the world. We're tempted to believe that we've finally arrived when the truth is God is not finished with us yet. And so our confession of faith, it it does not mean that we've got it all figured out. So what does it mean? What did it mean for Peter? And what does it mean for us now? Peter says, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Before considering what this might mean for us, I'd just like us to consider how this has been understood historically. Here in Matthew's Gospel, this word that's translated as church, it's it's the only place in the Gospels that we find this word, ecclesia. And so how can we know that what the Gospel writer is trying to communicate, this concept of church, far before there were any churches, right? Well, this word, this Greek word ecclesia is found in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which predates the time of Jesus. And this word ecclesia is found in there to describe the gathering or congregation of God's people. Jesus The gospel writer wants us to know is looking to build something to bring God's people together. And so as we understand that, to which there is very large agreement uh, among scholars about, the real question is then what is the rock? Historically, a couple of views have been proposed. And the, the well, most well-known, perhaps, being that, that Peter, that Peter is the rock, the first in a, a, a line of apostolic church leaders. And, and out of this comes the, the theological underpinnings for the papacy and, and for the Pope and, and, our, and the Roman Catholic Church, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. And the other view is that it is Peter's faith that is the rock. Peter's faith is the rock upon which God will build the church. But what I'd like to propose is, what if, what if it's a bit of both? What if, if Peter is intended to be the archetypal 
disciple. What if in saying this to Peter, what Jesus is saying is that all of those who come after you will be the rocks upon whose faith I build my church. So that when we confess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus looks at us and says, good for you, blessed are you, Barbara. Upon this rock I will build my church. Blessed are you, Bruce. Upon this rock I will build my church. Blessed are you, John. Upon this rock I will build my church. Blessed are you, Joanne. Upon this rock I will build my church. Friends, blessed are you. Upon these rocks I will build my church. Right here in Fort Lauderdale. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.